0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Last week, we marked the 10th anniversary of the Institute of Politics, the home base of The Axe Files. And as part of that celebration, we had a visit from an old friend and former IOP fellow, Tony Blinken, whose great personal story you heard here years ago Before he became Secretary of State. So he and I had an interesting public conversation last week at a weighty time in the world that is now his portfolio. And here it is. Thank you. I want to welcome my old friend back to the Institute of Politics. I don't know if you remember, uh, Mr. Secretary, when I called you in the winter of 2016 to talk to you about this. I distinctly remember, but I may be misrepresenting this, that I said, I think this job will be a stepping stone to Secretary of (laughs) State being a fellow at the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. It was a stepping stone to employment after the Obama administration, (laughs) so I'm grateful for that. Yeah, but um, before we get to the weightier issues at hand, because of this occasion, what did that fellowship mean to you? What did you take away from it?
1: Well, first I took away that this is just an extraordinary community. Um, I've had some chance to spend time on university college campuses uh, over the years, and um, I think it's safe to say I've never been more impressed with uh, a group of of students that I had the opportunity to spend some time with back in 2017. Just uh, extraordinary. Um, So it's good to be with all of you. Uh, You guys
0: can applaud for yourselves. (laughs)
1: It's okay. Although I have to say, it was also just a little bit intimidating because I asked myself at that age, uh, and yeah. it was not, not a good, not a good <laughs> answer. Um, but also, you were
0: playing rock and roll, I think. Uh, well,
1: yes. or trying to anyway. Yes. Yeah. Um, but what I so admire about what you've done, uh, Axe, and the entire team here is help build a remarkable community, a community that's giving back in a big way. Um, the, the numbers I saw said that you've managed over the years to place 26, 2,700 people into uh, internships in public service. That's exactly what we need. So I couldn't be more grateful for that.
0: Good, because we're going to talk to you about some State Department internships Good. after Good. this. Good.
1: Uh, we now have paid internships for the first time in history. <laughs>
0: right. I call that a cheap applause uh-huh. line. Uh, Actually, uh,
1: a costly applause line.
0: <laughs> um, this isn't just the anniversary of the founding of the Institute of politics, but it's also the two-year anniversary of the Biden administration. Right. talk to me about these two years from your perspective as Secretary of State what has gone well what, what are you proudest of what are the things where you look back and say, gee, I wish we had done that mm. a little bit better or differently I should say
1: so I think Two years in, what it's safe to say from my perspective, at least, is that we're in a better place in the world than than we were. Uh, The first instruction that I got from President Biden on taking the job was get out there, re-energize, rejuvenate, uh, re-engage our alliances, our partnerships, our work in international organizations. And the reason he was so determined that we do that is that if you're looking around at all of the issues that are actually having an impact on the lives of pretty much everyone in this room, whether it's the impact of a global pandemic, uh, whether it's climate change, whether it's the effect that all of these new technologies are having on our lives, the stuff that we carry in our pockets every single day, whether it's drugs, the fentanyl crisis. Uh, we can't deal effectively with a single one of these issues unless we're actually finding ways to cooperate and coordinate and work with other countries. On climate change, we're 15% or so of global emissions. We do everything right at home. We've still got to bring along the other 85%. COVID, which we all know all too well, we can do everything right at home. If there's another variant circulating out there somewhere, it could still come back and bite us. I could go down the list. So we've done that. And in ways big and small, rolling up our sleeves every single day, we're reengaged. The other thing he said was this. We have to be out there, not only to cooperate and coordinate with other countries, we have to be out there and at the table. Because when we're not, when America's disengaged, one or two things happens. Either someone else tries to take our place, and probably not in a way that advances our own interests and values or maybe just as bad no one does and we know the world doesn't organize itself and in the absence of anyone taking on that role you tend to have a vacuum it may be filled by bad things before it's filled by good things so the bottom line is this we are reengaged we're out there we're leading again and we're doing it with other countries in ways that are building coalitions to tackle these problems now there are a huge number of disruptors out there and we have to find ways to effectively address them We have geopolitical disruptors in the form of great power competition that's emerged again, particularly with Russia and with China in different ways. And we have these transnational disruptors, the ones we've just referenced that are having a big impact on people's lives. But we're in a better place to address them. Last thing is this. We've been really smart about something else. Our strength at home is directly tied to our standing around the world. When we're making smart investments in ourselves, as we did with infrastructure, as we did with the CHIPS Act to make sure that we remain the leader in making semiconductors here in the United States, as we did with the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which is the biggest single investment made to deal with climate change in the history of this country. When we're making those investments at home, it's actually having an impact on our standing around the world. I've got partners, countries coming up to us and saying, we see what you're doing to make yourself stronger at home. We want to work with you. We want to partner with you.
0: You know, I want to ask you about two aspects of that. One is there's such a gap between the, your description of the meaning of uh, foreign policy mm. and public perceptions of it. You know, I just saw a list of issues that people thought were most important. Mm. And I think uh, foreign policy was on it. And I think it was dead last yeah. and, uh, among, you know, all the issues. You know, when you ask about waste in a mm. focus group, they say, well, you know, there's all that foreign aid. Well, how much do you think it is? 25 percent of the budget. Well, it's less than one. So how do you engage? I mean, you just made the case, mm-hmm. but then there needs to be sort of an active effort to engage the American people, because we're living in an age in which people are feeling very much inward. How do you sell foreign policy in an environment like this? And isn't mm-hmm. that important?
1: We've got to do a better job in connecting the dots. One of the reasons, one of the reasons I wanted to be here today. Uh, was to do that. One of the reasons that the president asked me to speak to the Conference of Mayors uh, in Washington just a couple of days ago yeah. was to do that. One example, among others, number one killer of Americans between the age of 18 and 49, fentanyl. Last year, we lost more than 100,000 Americans to drug overdoses. 70% of those were from synthetic opioids like fentanyl. Well, there's a lot that we can do and we are doing to try to reduce demand here there's a lot that we are doing and can do to try to disrupt the criminal organizations that are responsible for that. But here's the way it works. Um, you've got chemicals that are produced halfway around the world, mostly in China right now, perfectly legal. They are then sent somewhere else, maybe to Mexico. They're diverted to a criminal organization. It then uses those chemicals to make a uh, synthetic opioid. Uh, you get pill presses that put them together. They get sent over the border one way or another. And you can make hundreds of thousands of pills in a room the size of this stage. Last year in the United States, we seized, we seized, because keep in mind, what we seized does not reflect what's out there. We don't even know exactly what's out there. We seized enough fentanyl in this country to kill every single American. So, how do you connect the dots? Well, one of the things that we're doing is trying to organize other countries to make sure that at least when perfectly legal chemicals are being shipped, people know who they're shipping them to. We're sharing information to make sure that if front companies get set up, uh, they're identified, that things are labeled properly, uh, that you know your customer. And that's one of the ways our foreign policy, because it requires working with China, it requires working with India, it requires working with Mexico, and more and more countries that are being affected. That's just one example of how what we're doing around the world has a direct impact. On let, me, let me
0: come at this from a, a different perspective, which is the perspective of the world. I mean, one thing is clear when you talk to leaders from around the world or diplomats from around the world, as you do on a daily basis, mm. is how much the American example and American actions mean to mm. particularly other democracies. And the thing you hear is, yeah, uh, we trust uh, Biden and we think things have are, you know, we, hmm. we appreciate the agreement and the outreach and so on. But how we know that that's going to be the case two years from now hmm. or, or, or even six years from now. And, you know, they watch what happened on January 6th. They watch, yeah. they watch other sort of elements of our democracy that are less attractive and, and less reassuring. And they say, can we count on the country? And well, you must hear that all the time.
1: You know, you get some. Of it. Look, the president said it himself, I think, uh, pretty early on. He was talking to one of his um, counterparts who said, I'm so, I'm so glad America's back. And then he said, but for how long?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, sure, you hear that. And I can say two things. First, we have to deal with, with the here and now, what we can do in this moment, in the time that we have. And my premise is this. If we demonstrate by the policies we pursue and the way we pursue them, that we're actually delivering results, that we're actually getting things done, that we're actually making life a little bit safer, a little bit more secure, a little bit more prosperous, a little bit more healthy for our fellow citizens, then hopefully they'll continue to support that approach. And I say the same thing to colleagues around the world who are looking at how they're going to work with us. Second, there's something incredibly powerful about our own recent history, which I've shared with others in conversation. One of the things that we still do as a country and that sets us apart is when we have problems here at home, We still deal with them openly, transparently. We don't try to sweep them under the rug, pretend they don't exist, no matter how painful it is, no matter how ugly it is. And that's actually a very powerful example, because when we're asking other countries uh, to do the same thing, we can actually say we're doing it. You need, we hope, to confront your own problems. We're actually demonstrating that you can do that and do it in an open and transparent way.
0: You talked about alliances. Obviously, the place where it has been most dramatically reflected is in Ukraine, a situation that you couldn't have uh, foreseen uh, when you became Secretary of State. The question comes up, and the failure just in the last 24 hours to come to an agreement on whether German tanks can be shared with, uh, with the Ukrainians, the question comes up, how much time do you have there before... The coalition phrase. You know, Putin is obviously playing a waiting game, and, you know, the Russians have great tolerance for suffering, and uh, he seems intent to try and wait this out. What are you telling the Ukrainians, and what is your sense of where this goes and how quickly it has to move before this thing kind of frays?
1: First, uh, I'd say that from almost day one, we've seen a lot of premature reports of the demise of the, the coalition and on the contrary uh, not only is it held together it's grown consistently stronger and i'll come to the specific issue you raised but time and again we've seen dozens of countries come together to try to make sure that ukraine's getting what it needs when it needs to defend itself to push back against the russian aggression to take back the land that was seized the humanitarian support the economic support we just did another so-called drawdown of military equipment for Ukraine, more than $2.5 billion. Uh, We're up to almost $30 billion in military support, about $60 billion in total support. Europeans have done much the same. But what I'm finding is this. The center is very much holding in two ways. Just before Christmas, I had a chance to speak to the entire Senate uh, and um, something that uh, your uh, successor, Senator Heitkamp, knows so well. And um, I found talking to Republicans and Democrats alike in both the Senate and then the House, that the center is still very, very much there. Similarly, if you go around the European countries...
0: The House, okay. by the way, a little less so.
1: No, but even so, uh, I had a chance to spend some time with the, uh, the new chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Mike McCall, very strong supporter of uh, the efforts in, uh, in Ukraine. So I think the, the center is very much holding, and in Europe as well. Now, on the weapons, let me say this. Every step along the way, starting from before the Russian aggression, Uh, we tried to make sure that Ukrainians had in their hands what they needed, what they could use to effectively push back against any Russian aggression. Before the war started, we saw the storm clouds. We tried to warn the world. We tried Mm -hmm. to prevent it. Mm -hmm. But even as we were doing that, we tried to make sure the Ukrainians were prepared. We did drawdowns of our equipment, stingers and javelins, going back to Labor Day a year ago, and then again before Christmas. So they had in their hands what they needed when the Russians went to Kiev, and they were able to repel it. All along the way, we've tried to make sure that as the war moved as the russians shifted what they were doing and where they were doing it the ukrainians had what they needed and you've seen a succession of different weapon systems go to the ukrainians there are all, the, the discussions that we have uh with allies and partners and including ourselves is not only what um weapons do they need but they need to be trained on them so they have got to do that they need to be able to maintain them and they've got to be able to use them effectively all of that goes into these decisions. Yeah. So it's an But everybody seems to agree,
0: all the military, uh, including our own leaders, mm-hmm. seem to agree that they need tanks now. British just sent them. They didn't get them out of this meeting yesterday. How does this get resolved? Because this seems to be essential to the spring fighting that everybody predicts is going to happen.
1: We just sent uh, Ukraine a large number of Bradley fighting vehicles, which are basically light tanks. Uh, the French have done, some, uh, done the same. Uh, the British have actually sent them uh, combat tanks. Others are looking to do that. This is an, It's an ongoing process that will continue to work. But again, we have to make sure that for each system we send it, and these are sovereign decisions for each country to make. Different countries have contributed different things at different times, but all told, what it adds up to is a Ukrainian fighting force that first of all starts with the courage and resilience of the fighting force and the Ukrainian people, but because of what we've been able to provide them, has done as well as it's done. And on the Russians, let me just say this to the first part of your question. Um, This is not a static thing. You say Putin is going to try to wait them out. He's not waiting them out in um, a situation where every single day is not doing extraordinary damage that he's inflicting on his own people and his own military. That military has suffered horrific losses and continues to do so every single day. Meanwhile, the sanctions, the export controls that we've imposed on Russia are dramatically, dramatically uh, undercutting its ability over time, not only to continue the, uh, the war, but uh, to advance uh, Russia's economy, uh, to allow it to pursue energy extraction. It's going to have an increasingly profound and heavy effect on Russia going forward. I wish that wasn't the case. This is a tragedy um, brought about by Putin. The question that one would really love to ask the Russians, if we could speak more directly and clearly to them, is, How is what Putin is doing in Ukraine, how has that changed your life for the better? How has it done a single thing that makes you better off?
0: In in addition to the uh, price that Russia is paying, he's inflicting a tremendous amount of uh, heartache and damage on Ukraine. And it seems like with each assault and each Mm. attack from a political standpoint, it makes it harder for uh, President Zelensky to reach any sort of mm. negotiated settlement other than the exit of Russia from the country. Mm. And one also wonders what Russian-held ground would be like, given the hostility that people uh, feel for them. But mm. wh- where where do you think this ends?
1: Well, fundamentally, this has to be a decision for for Ukraine to make. Yeah, I knew you it would say to that.
0: But I mean, I'm just, <laughs> I, I probably should kick myself for asking. <laughs> uh, but um, but i mean general milley said he thought the fighting would go in, you know mm-hmm. would go on that it ultimately would be a negotiation it would have to be mm-hmm. that every war ends with a negotiation Sorry. but it seems like it gets harder and harder given how much destruction is being inflicted on the on the ukrainian
1: well uh, it doesn't of course zelensky has to be responsive to public opinion he is a democratically elected president he has to represent the ukrainian people what's your
0: sense of him by the way
1: Oh, he's, um, he's extraordinary. I got to know him uh, a bit before the, the Russian aggression. I was over in Ukraine several times before the Russians went in, spent time with him. In fact, when we had the intelligence that we shared with the world uh, about what Russia was planning, one of my responsibilities at the president's request was to go see President Zelensky and share with him what we had, basically to tell him we think your country is going to be attacked, uh, which is a, a pretty sobering moment. But publicly,
0: he was he was pushing back on that. Well, there was a
1: reason for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't the, want
0: people to flee. He didn't
1: want people to flee. He didn't want investment to flee mm-hmm. uh, because he was afraid that the, the more the possibility of conflict was talked up, the more his economy would be talked down. I understand that. But meanwhile, he was making the preparations that were necessary. And you saw that in what the Ukrainians were able to do with our assistance yeah. in repelling. The attack against Kiev, and by the way, Putin has already lost in terms of what he was trying to accomplish. What he was trying to accomplish was to erase Ukraine's top, identity, top,
0: topple him, and,
1: and topple him, uh, erase Ukraine as an independent country, subsume it into Russia. That has failed. That can't succeed. Now, where this settles is a profound question, and what damage is done um, in between now and then, we don't know. I was at just earlier today in Chicago. I was in at Ukraine Village and went to the um, Modern Art Museum. They have a an exhibit now. On of drawings, paintings by the children of war, by young Ukrainian children. And it shows their experience of the, of the war through these uh, drawings and paintings. And these are kids from, I don't know, age two, three, up to 10, 11, 12 uh, teenagers. And this gets to another really important point. You walk in, you look at this, and I think the first reaction you have if you have children is these could be my kids. What if this was my kid? And what Putin is trying to do with the daily assault is to anesthetize all of us, to normalize this, for people to basically say, okay, this is happening, and we just accept it as somehow normal, acceptable. That's what we really have to avoid. We have to make sure that we collectively uh, continue to make clear that, no, this is not normal. This is not acceptable. And if we allow this to go forward with impunity in Ukraine, Then we open a Pandora's box where would-be aggressors around the world will say, hmm, I can get away with it. I can go ahead, seize another country's territory by force, erase its borders, kill its people, destroy its infrastructure, and nothing's going to happen. That's why this is important and is bigger than, than Ukraine itself. It goes beyond that, and it's why we have to stick with it.
0: We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. You were asked recently about what the greatest global challenge Hmm. was, and and it wasn't from Russia, it was from China. Uh, You're headed there in a few weeks. Uh, The president uh, saw President Xi in uh, Bali, Talk about China, the China that you're going to visit right now, not necessarily the same China from a year ago, before uh, the COVID debacle, before their economy was was ground to a halt. What are you hoping to accomplish there?
1: So the the president and President Xi had a very good, constructive, long conversation in Bali on the, the margins of this G20 meeting toward the end of last year. And I think the most important thing in the immediate for us is this. This is the most Consequential and complex relationship of any that we we have in the world, and by the way, the same is true. I think many other countries could say the same about the relationship with China. We're in a competition. Uh, we have, I think, a moment in time which we can also talk about where uh, we're no longer in the post Cold War era. There's a competition on to shape what comes next. China is a, a leading competitor, and in many ways, the vision that they have for what the world should be and where it should go is not the same as the one we have, but Competition's one thing, conflict is another, and it's strongly in interest to make sure that even as we compete very, very vigorously, uh, we avoid competition veering into conflict. One of the ways you do that is making sure that you actually have good lines of communication, that you're talking, that you're engaging, that you're putting some guardrails on the relationship, that you're putting a floor underneath it. That's what the president and President Xi were uh, were doing in Bali. That's the conversation they asked me to continue. So that's a big part of what we're going to try to do. The other thing is this.
0: Well, that question can be very much shaped by issues like Taiwan and China's posture toward Taiwan. We saw what happened in Hong Kong. Do you think that you have a deeper understanding of their intentions? And do they have a deeper understanding of what the U.S.'s reaction would be to that?
1: I think I think they do, especially from the last conversation between uh, between the presidents. Um, and again, that's something that I think it's important to continue to pursue. Look, two things. On Taiwan, what we've seen over the last few years is I think China make a decision that it uh, was no longer comfortable with the status quo, a status quo that had prevailed for decades that it had actually been a su- successful in terms of the relationship be- between our countries and managing what is um, a difficult situation. Um, but They've made a decision that uh, that status quo was no longer acceptable. And we've seen them over the last few years, not the last few months, the last few years, ratchet up the pressure uh, on Taiwan. Military pressure, economic pressure, trying to cut off its ties uh, to countries around the world, to international organizations. And from our perspective, that status quo has worked, and it's vital to what's important to us, which is maintaining peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. What we said to China is this— um, They say this is a sovereign issue for us. Our response is, this is an interest to the United States and to countries around the world. Because if peace and stability is disrupted across the strait, if something happens as a result of the actions you take, 50% of every container ship that uh, is moving around the world every day goes through the Taiwan Strait. 70% or more of the computer chips uh, manufactured uh, in the world at the, the higher ends are manufactured on Taiwan. If that gets disrupted, the entire world economy will suffer. Every country in the world has an interest in making sure that peace and stability remains in the strait, and that differences are resolved peacefully, not through pressure, not through coercion, and certainly not through the use of force. So it's very important that they understand that, even as we listen to, uh, to their concerns. On COVID, it's also profoundly in our interest that China succeed in dealing with COVID. First, we do not wanna see people suffering anywhere uh, from the disease. Second, for the sake of its own economy, and as a result for the sake of economies around the world, Uh, It's important that they uh, be able to recover and recover uh, successfully. And third, if COVID is out of control anywhere, as I said earlier, you may get new variants. Those variants are going to travel around the world. They may come back here and we may find ourselves in trouble again. So it's both the right thing uh, on a human moral level and the smart thing to want to make sure that they succeed. We can't make those decisions for them. I hope that uh, that they do.
0: And you feel that the temperature has been lowered to some degree?
1: I think so because, again, when you're you're talking and engaging, it, it tends to have, have that effect. There's something else that's going on. One of the things that I'm hearing around the world, and I think the Chinese are hearing the same thing, is there's a, there's a demand signal. The rest of the world expects us to manage this relationship responsibly. They know that the way we manage it is actually going to affect them too. They know that um, if um, we're not finding ways in areas where we can, where it's in our interest to cooperate, um, they will lose out on some of the benefits. We need, for example, to see China play a leadership role in dealing with climate change. We need to see them play a leadership role in dealing with, uh, with global health, um, along with us and, and, and other countries. It's in our interest to do so. But also, that's what other countries are saying to us. So we're trying to be responsive to that. We'll see if Beijing can do the same thing.
0: You know, you, you, you mentioned the, dip, the the world in which we live today. I think about uh, the young Tony Blinken, younger Tony Blinken, (laughs) who uh, walked into the uh, White House uh, National Security Council as Mm. a junior aide years ago in the Clinton administration. And that was right after the Berlin Wall had Mm. fallen, the Soviet Union had collapsed. Mm. The U.S. was sort of a colossus astride Mm. the the world, a unipower, as it were, superpower. And trade and globalization were seen as ways to lift uh, economies around the world and uh, and and also as tools of diplomacy. Oh, yeah. we're, it seems like we're in a much different place. There was this, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the administration, which you were the Deputy Secretary of State, was going to be a way of creating an alliance of nations as a hedge against Chinese economic aggression. And that failed. And you don't hear much about trade anymore. Globalization, we just had this... Davos, the, the annual thing, Davos, which feels very much now like sort of Disneyland for the elites. It's sort of like still fun to go, but it's a little dated. So uh, so talk about how the world has changed and what that means for the U.S. What, are, what, is, what is the challenge in this new world that we find?
1: So I guess I'd say two things. First, um, let's not be too hard on ourselves in terms of that that moment in time and what we thought about it, because we got a lot of the big things right, even as we got a lot of small things wrong. We managed to get through the Cold War without getting another world war. Uh, we managed to see the world lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty uh, yeah. during that period. All of that was, was good. And if you actually did a freeze frame before COVID hit, in the aggregate, even so even as recently as three years ago, in the aggregate, I think it's fair to say the world was actually huh, safer, more prosperous, healthier than it had been probably at any time in, in human history. This is kind of the Stephen Pinker view of the world, but I think a lot of that is borne out. But what we collectively, I think, missed were a few things. One is we missed that even as inequities between nations were actually shrinking, uh, they were growing within them. And that's had profound effects. And we see that play out here. We see that play out around the world. I think we had uh, a faith that economic integration uh, was going to bring other countries uh, into much more positive relations with every other country, that hasn't borne itself out. We thought that economic liberalization would lead to political liberalization. That well, I mean, borne I think itself.
0: these re- these things are connected, right? Because mm-hmm. that the great economic polarization that we mm-hmm. saw, winners and losers as a result of trade, as a result of globalization, created a backlash. And we see it in populist That's movements right. around the world, including the U.S. We saw it in Brexit. We saw it, we've seen a lot of different places. What what do we do about that? What do we do to give people a sense that they actually have a stake mm. in the economic systems of our countries and that it's not just the global elite that are benefiting from them?
1: Well, in the first instance, I come back to what I started with a few minutes ago, which is to say it starts at home. And it starts with making smart investments in ourselves, investments that are actually going to deliver better results uh, and better lives and livelihoods for our own people. And we've been making those investments, and I think they're going to start to pay out in the uh, the next few years.
0: You know, uh, it also starts with the recognition that there were people in regions
1: oh, absolutely. that were losers in this deal. Absolutely, which is one of the reasons, for example... We want to make sure we're built. We've, we've talked about the incredibly positive power for many years of, uh, of the Internet. But, of course, if it's not widely shared, that positive power is not going to be there for everyone. So rural connectivity has been a huge piece of this. Of course, we also know the downsides yes. of connectivity for, uh, for everyone that we also have to grapple with. But There's yes, enough exactly
0: connectivity right. that it has helped fuel some of these populist movements.
1: That's, that's right. So we have, that's a whole other uh, subject. But I think you're exactly right. There has to be, and there, I think there has been. Uh, an awakening to the fact that in different ways too many people have been left out left behind but also look I think there are, there are a lot of profound things that have happened this is what the president talks about this as an inflection point in world history that comes along every six or seven generations not every decade but six or seven generations and so much has been said and written about this but one of the things I feel profoundly you ask me what's changed since I was first in government when I started in government in the early 1990s the information environment was this. You, if you were working at the White House or anywhere else for that matter. At 6.30 at night, you turned on your TV if you had one in your office and you watched the network news, one of three, three channels. When you woke up in the morning, you opened your front door and you picked up the New York Times, the Washington Post, the, the Wall Street Journal. Now, of course, we're on an intravenous feed of information every single day, every single millisecond of the day. That has created a number of things, including, for those of us who are in government, this incredible pressure, which you know so well from being at the heart of things at the White House, this incredible pressure to be reactive almost immediately to everything that's going on. Having the discipline to, to not do that, to actually sit, sit back, step back, think through what you're doing, that's more difficult than it's ever been, but it's also more imperative.
0: I should say been. parenthetically here I'm not going to ask you about the whole documents thing because I know you won't answer. So uh, I just wanted to put a pin in there. You know, a lot of the young people here um, care deeply about the issue of human rights. And I know you and I know your family history and I know how passionate you are about about human rights. And yet there is always this tension between uh, wanting to lead on human rights and the strategic imperatives of the country. So, you know, we think of Saudi Arabia and Egypt. You just met with the foreign minister from Turkey uh, who wants F-16 fighters Uh, something that the administration supports and some members of Congress don't on human rights grounds. How do you navigate that? How do you say we are the guarantors of human rights at the same time that, but, you know, there are times when we can't?
1: President Biden wanted to make sure that one of the things we did was to put human rights back at uh, the heart of our foreign policy, but it's not and can't be the totality of our foreign policy. I don't see a zero-sum choice between values on the one hand and interests on the other. Human rights are a a profound value for us, but they're also a strong interest uh, because we know that countries that actually respect the human rights of their citizens in a multiplicity of ways are going to be much better actors on the global stage with us, for us, and, and for the things that we care about. So one of the things that we have to do in every relationship that we have is figure out the right balance of, of interests at any given time. We're trying is to that advance painful? all. Sometimes it's painful, but sometimes it works in, in, in interesting ways that may not be so evident. You mentioned Saudi Arabia. Well, we spent a lot of time trying to recalibrate that relationship to make sure that it's working better than it has been to actually address our interests. One of those interests is human rights. One of the benefits of what we've done over the last couple of years is we've gotten the Saudis engaged in a much more productive way and positive way in trying to end the war in Yemen. This is, when we took office, arguably was the, the worst humanitarian situation in the world. And the abuse of human rights of the people of Yemen was probably near the yeah. top list. As a result of the kind of engagement that we pursued, okay, the, the conflict is certainly not over, but it's in a much better place than it's been. We've had a ceasefire that's now endured for, for many, many months. People are not being uh, killed the way they were before. Rights are in a better place than they were. So you have to think about these things, I think, in, in ways that are you getting practical results. It can be unsatisfying,
0: you know. There are some journalists here who and others who remember the Jamal Khashoggi massacre. or And, uh, you know, the, the, it's, it was jarring to see the president fist bump the guy who apparently was a mastermind of that murder. But I, you're saying that's this is what I'm trying to get at. I'm not being judgmental yeah. about that. No, no. These are, I'm saying these are hard decisions. You're going to meet the Chinese. Yeah. They have... You know, essentially a gulag uh, where the Uyghurs, a million Uyghurs are being. Ha- you know,
1: we we no, you're right. These there there are hard decisions. Uh, there there are challenging balances to try uh, to get right. But again, in the case of Saudi Arabia, I think there. I think it's fair to say that there are Yemenis who uh, would probably not be alive today uh, had we not found a way to in, in, engage and bring the Saudis along in a way that's at least produced for now uh, a ceasefire. Similarly, as we're you know, looking at uh, these challenges, we have uh, with China, the profound abuses being committed against people in uh, in, in Xinjiang. We've stood up. We've um, spoken out. We've encouraged and gotten other countries to do the same thing. And we have put a spotlight on it. And we've taken concrete actions in terms of sanctions. Uh, we've taken concrete actions in terms of, in many places, trying to make sure, for example, that we're not importing products that are produced through slave labor.
0: But it's a balancing act. You know, I realize you're a diplomat. So, uh, there are things you can say and things that you can't say. But I must say, it must be frustrating at times that you have to make these balancing judgments. Because I know your passion for if for there, people.
1: If there weren't frustrations on a daily basis, we'd be out of a job. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it would we be it would that. be great to be able to go out of business because the world is perfect, everything's going well. But it's the nature well, of the one job. One
0: other thing I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about because I asked you at the beginning what what went well what could have done better. You're about. I'm sure you're about to uh, go through some bracing hearings about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And let's stipulate that I think a lot of Americans would say, yeah, it's, it is a good thing that we are not there anymore. Concern about what's happened to human rights there. But the withdrawal remains a question. And as always happens in Washington, there's a lot of fingers pointing in different directions, some of them at the State Department. Do you look back at that? And say and ask the sort of after action, what we should, what should we have done differently?
1: You you always look back at what you've done and try to and try to ask that question. And uh, one of the things that we did is we we've actually we're taking a hard look at that. And we commissioned a study by one of our leading retired. Uh, diplomats uh, to do just that. And that's something we'll be, I'm sure, talking about in the, uh, in the weeks and months ahead. We want to make sure that um, in, in any instance, especially one as challenging as fraud as that, that we learn whatever lessons are to be learned. We apply them going forward, and we've already started to do that. But you I,
0: acknowledge it was fraud. So
1: I'd say a few things. First, to your point, President Biden ended the longest war in American history. And the result of that is that there will not be future generations of Americans going off to fight and die in, uh, in Afghanistan. I think that's a good thing. And I think that's something that most Americans support. Second, many of the predictions- And I was
0: there in 2009. He was very we, consistent in his view.
1: We, we, we both heard it together. Yeah. Then. Uh, second, many of the Predictions, at least until now, of some of the terrible things that might result, mm-hmm. have not borne out. Uh, we've not seen uh, an upsurge in terrorism coming out of Afghanistan. In fact, we've demonstrated that to the extent that terrorists are uh, are there and being harbored there, we're able to uh, actually get that at them, as we were, were able to do with uh, yeah. with Zarqawi. We haven't seen to date uh, a mass uh, refugee uh, exodus. It's been
0: hard for women and girls. There. But
1: that's what I was coming to. Uh, We have also seen the Taliban uh, being uh, either um, unable or unwilling to make good on things it said it would do, and that the international community, not just the United States, said we expected of them, starting with making sure that they were actually protecting the rights of all Afghans, including women and girls. That has been a dramatic step backwards, and we're working to deal with that as best we can now.
0: We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. There are a lot of people here who are considering what they want to do with their lives. And there was a period of time uh, in the last decade when joining the Foreign Service became less attractive. I want to give you a couple of minutes to make a sales pitch here uh, for why people should consider that work, that form of service.
1: So I've had a incredible opportunity in my own life to do a bunch of different things. Um, I was a
0: journalist for a while.
1: I was a lawyer for a while, for one year, 10 months, two weeks, three days, and five hours. Um, good, that good. Huh? Yeah, that good. Um, but for those of you who had to go to the law, it's great. Um, I dabbled in in, uh, in movies, et cetera. After a long, circuitous journey, I wound up in government working for, for President Clinton. And for the past 30 years, that's Pretty much what i've done with a couple of periods of time out of out of government because elections happen and uh and things change and what i can tell you is this there are so many different ways to find um, fulfillment to find uh, happiness uh, to find a sense of purpose in life in the private sector ngos in academia you name it for me at least having had these different experiences there is something unique about serving in government And that something unique is right there behind us, and it's behind me every single day, either figuratively or literally. And it may sound corny, but for me at least, knowing that I'm there with the American flag behind me every day is something that um, I haven't really found in any other pursuit that I've uh, engaged in. Um, So I really commend it to folks to find a way, and it doesn't have to be in Washington and the federal government. I think public service in some fashion, serving your community, if not serving your country, uh, there's something about that that just is unique in the fulfillment that you get from it, even with the frustrations that come along with it. We just had the largest entering class at the State Department uh, that we've had in more than a decade. I am incredibly proud of that. and no. pleased about it. Um, and, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. It needs constant renewal. One of my missions is to make sure to the extent I can have anything to say about it, is that we continue to attract the most talented, most dedicated people that we possibly can. That's what I want to see happen. It's one of the reasons, David, that uh, we're spending time not only in dealing with all of these external problems, but also trying to make our own institution as strong as it can be and and an attractive place to work. We're in a competition for talent. We know that. So we have to make sure that our department is uh, a place that people want to work. We've done that in a number of ways that probably time doesn't allow me uh, to get into. But as it happens, our diplomat in residence, Sudaflaco, is right here today. I think she may even be at a table outside. If you'd like some information about the State Department, uh, we welcome you stopping by uh, and grabbing it or looking at the website. I hope you do. I
0: hope you do. Let me just say, Mr. Secretary, my friend Tony, we are so proud to claim you As an alum of the Institute of Politics, the Institute of Politics is what it is because people like you with a wealth of experience are willing to share their time and the lessons of their experience with the leaders of tomorrow. And um, so the fact that you came back here today and took time in your busy schedule to be with us as we marked our own occasion uh, means the world to me.
1: David, thank you. And I feel a real attachment not only to you personally, because we're such good friends and, and colleagues over many years, but to the IOP and to the University of Chicago. it's a great experience for me. Uh, so being back is, is a wonderful thing. I, I had some just extraordinary colleagues who were here as, as fellows at the same time. So I'm really grateful for that. Last night, I've got, as you know, I've got little kids. I have a, a, um, a soon-to-be three-year-old daughter and a soon-to-be four-year-old son. And my wife is putting our daughter to bed. And um, as she was putting her to bed, my daughter said, oh, should we wait for daddy? And my wife said, no, no, he actually, he's in Chicago tonight, and he'll he'll be back tomorrow. And she looked at my wife with real concern and said, do they have beds in Chicago?
0: (laughs) So I'm going to go back
1: tonight and report that, yes, they do, and they have an
0: incredible Institute of Politics. It's one of our great virtues. (laughs) So uh, thank you so much. Thank Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder-Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.